Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 145 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about the current state of collaboration tools and technologies. In this episode, we wanted to kick off a new and occasional series of fresh looks at old technologies that many might have forgotten, or they just might have slipped your mind, but now these technologies might actually be ready for prime time. And we're going to start with speech recognition. Tom, what's in our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will be discussing the current state of speech recognition technology, how we use it, and some arguments both for and against using it in your law practice. In our second segment, we're going to look at the apparent demise of Google Glass and the launch of the Microsoft, and we'll begin now saying HoloLens or HoloLens. We don't know what it is, so we'll just use both of them. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started uh, on our first topic, and that's speech recognition. Back when we recorded our resolutions episode a couple of weeks ago, one of our recommendations uh, was to revisit something old and see if it's new again, see if it makes sense to use something now that before may have been before its time or just not ready for prime time. I think it's fair to put speech recognition in that category, although we've been talking about speech recognition for years. There have been products on the market for years that actually do a pretty good job of turning our words into text. But I think the rise of tools like Siri and Google Now and Cortana on Windows on, on, and on mobile devices in particular have really made speech recognition, I think, an interesting topic again, at least for me anyway. Dennis, what brought speech recognition back onto your radar? Well, it actually is a much simpler use than even what you're referring to. And, and that is that I was, was doing some email and I was doing some texting, and I was just kind of uh, sort of longer emails. I was having trouble just on with the keyboards, uh, the touchscreen keyboards, especially on my Android phone. And I saw the little icon that looked like a, a microphone there on the keyboard, and I hit it, and I dictated a sentence and it got it perfectly and I dictated another sentence and it got it perfectly and I found that over a couple months that on a fairly regular basis I'm I'm using on on both my iPhone and and on my Android phone uh, that speech in in email and in instant messaging and it it works really well and and so it made me start to to say hey what is happening in the world of speech recognition that it seems like it's working so well and um in this sort of small context of 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 emails and text it's actually quite quite useful and i can do things a lot quicker uh then and it's not taking a lot of time right but but i it's a lot easier and quicker than than using keyboards and so that actually is what got me thinking about this topic tom well you know i kind of take a different approach to it which is that 
I like speech recognition. It has um, been something that I've had kind of a hit and miss with, and, and we'll, I think, get more into some of the specifics a little bit later. But I find that I actually can type faster than uh, than I prefer to wait. And I, and I am thinking more specifically of using speech recognition tools to dictate documents, to dictate longer things. And I find that I really prefer to use a keyboard because I can actually, the time it takes me to type and then correct things using a keyboard is usually a lot faster than it would be to try and correct something if I make a mistake while I'm talking. I, I don't have, there will be some times where I prefer to talk text messages or talk emails if I have something long to say and I'm on my phone. But I, I will say that as an Android user, um, and frankly now that people have, uh, iPhone users have this too, using, using something like SwiftKey to be able to just swipe my messages makes it so much easier to type it out. So I think that it's really something that depends on uh, how you plan to use, how, what makes you most comfortable. I don't want to be ageist here, but I would think that uh, generations that have been less comfortable on a keyboard, less comfortable working on things with keys on, especially in a virtual screen, are probably more likely to take to speech recognition and, and like that. Whereas I, I've seen younger generations just fly with their fingers on a virtual keyboard, and I think that's just because that's they are they're natives to that whole environment where we're more natives to the keyboard, and it's not always a, a comfortable a comfortable issue. But I, I guess I, I, I'll come back, Dennis, and ask you this question because we kind of put this in the category of something that has been around for a while, but then um, something changed to make it, you want to give a fresh look at it again. So, I mean, is it just the fact that you're now, you now find yourself texting uh, with, with your voice? Is that what made you want to take a look at it or is there something more than that? Well, I think that's a, a part of it because it brought it back to my my attention, but but also was interested in because I think it is an example of how technology changed to make something that sort of worked, or people used to say maybe it, like ninety to ninety five percent worked in the past. It seems like it works a whole lot better all of a sudden when you look at it, and I think it's an illustration of a different way to think about the cloud and computing in the cloud. And it's also an interesting approach to say, how can you, uh, as you were saying, Tom, you got the different swipe things. People, some people can type really fast on the virtual keyboards. Some people might like to dictate, but it sort of shows how we can personalize our devices in a way. So sort of what works best for you is, is now available. So I, I think to me what's interesting is how all this stuff can be done on the back end in the cloud, um, and because we have broadband, so we have fast connections, we have all this computing power up in the cloud, that there, the delay doesn't seem that much. And it's a reasonable, the increased accuracy I'm seeing is a, a reasonable exchange for maybe a little bit of delay in that what we're speaking gets kind of uh, put up into the internet, into a data center where it's processed and sent back. And then also a lot going on in the in a way of learning um, in connection with speech recognition that can be done in these big server farms that you couldn't do on your computer back in, in the old days. So I, I think it's it's a good illustration of, of something that's really basic that's been around. I know, it seems like lawyers have been experimenting with speech recognition for 20 years, but 
it seems that that cloud approach of getting the processing of the speech off of off of the device or off the computer has really started to make a difference. Well, and I think I mean that's certainly not that, that cloud approach is not anything new. That's that's how it worked. I think what has made it better is, like you said, the the I guess faster speeds, the wider availability of broadband. I I remember when Siri first came out, uh, talking to Siri on my iPhone and just sitting and watching that thing spin round and round and round and round, waiting for Siri to get the answer because we were waiting for the cloud to get it. And the other problem was not just a, a matter of broadband connectivity, but it was a matter of demand on the server. And and I think that has improved uh, Siri's ability to recognize things fast has improved tremendously. I tend to use Google Now for dictating and, and things like that, and it has very fast speeds. I will say, though, that connectivity is not always as perfect as you would like it to be. I find myself actually, if I'm going to dictate something, I've actually found myself dictating using my smartwatch more than anything else. So if I'm sitting there, it happens a lot while I'm cooking at night. If I'm getting dinner ready and, and a text message comes in, it is so much easier to just look at my watch and it'll show me the message and it will give me an option to say, do you want to send a response? And I say yes. And then I can dictate the response directly into the watch, send it off. And I don't even touch my phone to do it, which is tremendously helpful. But what's interesting about that is, is that sending a text by watch depends more, not only on uh, connectivity to the servers, but connectivity to your phone. So if my phone actually was somewhere uh, other than right next to where my watch was, I've gotten messages in the past that say, sorry, we cannot send your text because it's disconnected. The watch is disconnected from your phone. And so um, there still are, I think, some issues. I still find with the speech recognition that I use, whether it's Siri, whether it's uh, whether it's it's Google Now, I still notice that uh, proper names aren't recognized uh, as well as I would like them to be. Um, you you know, saying things in exactly the right way uh, to be able to get something that you want is a whole lot better. Uh, I think that there are still some problems with that. I know that people who use, I think what's interesting is is that we really are talking more now in terms of tools like Siri and Google. Google now, but we haven't talked about sort of the 800-pound gorilla of, of speech recognition, and that's Dragon Dictation. Dragon Dictation is from the company that actually partnered with Apple to develop Siri, um, and I don't care about lawyers using it that often. I don't know if that means that it is um, present everywhere, that everybody's just used to using it, or if it has sort of fallen off as a tool that, that lawyers are using. I just don't read about lawyers using it that often, although I know that some of us, you know, our friend Jim Calloway uses it religiously, but I just don't hear that the adoption rate is as much as I would have thought it would be at this point in time. Is, is that your sense or am I just out of out of touch? My sense is that the, the interest in in sort of what I would call full-time dictation, that sort of dragon dictation where you're trying to dictate letters, documents, that sort of thing. I think the interest in that and probably the, the usage of that has diminished over the years. That is a generational thing because I, I've talked to, to younger lawyers who just, uh, in fact, someone today was given an example of a firm he was at that's known for their experiment where they didn't want to give associates 
keyboard. They looked for ways not to give associates keyboards to a computer because they thought that dictation was totally the most efficient way to do things, and they didn't want associates even to have a keyboard to type. So a lot of younger lawyers just don't get the whole dictation thing as it comes to documents. And and so I think that that to me is an interesting aspect of, of why speech recognition is now coming back to the forefront for me. I sort of see it as a learning technology in a way. So all the stuff that's going on is this fine tuning and this predicting. And that's part of the reasons it's becoming more accurate. And that sort of look ahead, uh, you know, guess the next word thing that a lot of that you can do on your iPhone and your Android, that's getting better. And I think that those same principles are being applied to speech recognition. So I dictated a text message to my daughter who wanted to, to make sure that I was on Viber. Uh, which is a communications platform. And so I dictated that in the text. And this is an example where I, where I think there's learning within the system. Uh, and you were talking about proper names that doesn't do so well. Viber, it got exactly right two times when I used it in, in a text message. And I, w- I was impressed with that because I, th- I could see that there was learning happening on the back end. I had great experience, uh, Tom, as you have with Google Now. I haven't done that much with Siri, but it's it's been good uh, lately. And I sort of think that when I think about speech recognition in the old days, you sort of had this holy grail that you could dictate a whole document, a whole legal document. And you were even at 95% or better accuracy on speech recognition, there were going to be a lot of typos and things you had to create. Just, you know, if you just do the math of what a 95% success rate is. And I think that that's sort of an unrealistic approach. And, And I think what's happened over time is you start to look at things and say, I'm probably not going to dictate a whole legal document you know, word by word. Uh, but if I can use voice commands to insert paragraphs and to trigger, you know, certain things happening in my forms, that could be a great way to do things. I think the way people have uh, started to, to use voice commands in cars has also done a lot of this. So like in my car, I can say, you know, I can say a name. It finds the name in my in my contact list and, and calls that number. So I think it's that, that sort of smallness of what you're doing and the accuracy of that. And then speech recognition has become really good at that, where I don't expect it to work well, although there are some examples out there. If people do some looking, there's an article that that a, uh, a journalist wrote, uh, basically a, you know, a magazine article that they dictated is on their iPhone as they're walking down the street. And it's not, it's not that bad. It's pretty amazingly good, but there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of mistakes in it. So I, I think you look at the reasonable expectations, what voice can do well, uh, having those discrete tasks. And I don't know, Tom, for me, the holy grail in speech recognition would be that I'm giving a presentation, I record it, and uh, a speech recognition program you know, does a perfect transcript at, at the same time. That would be one thing for me. And the other thing is I'm riding my bike and I have a great idea and I just, you know, yell it out to my to my watch or whatever and I capture those things. 
I I suspect, given what we know about speech recognition, that neither of those things are going to be perfect at this time. But I think in other places, and this is why speech has become so interesting, I think it really can work well. Well, I'll tell you, based on my experience, I think that of those two examples you just gave, that second example about yelling out an idea to your watch is actually a pretty easy thing to do. I mean, I can do that on my uh, on my phone if I want to. I can wake it up and I can have it save a message or a note or anything that I want and and. It's using Google's speech recognition, which is really pretty good. As to dictating long presentations and things and transcribing them, I think that's something that uh, I'm not seeing a lot of people people doing at this point in time. And, and, and I think that, that probably the technology is not where it needs to be for that. But I'm going to come back and say, all right, so these tools are good. We tend to be using tools like Siri and Google Now more often to and voice commands. I'm just going to throw it out there and ask you and ask the audience, how often do you actually see people using them? How often out in public? Is this a private thing that we do? I very rarely see people saying, okay, Siri, or I, I feel very awkward sitting in my car saying, okay, Google. Um, I, you know, I've One of the nice things about having a, a Moto X phone, and frankly, right now, I just said, okay, Google, and my phone woke up because the, the Moto X actually can do that. And, uh, what's, what's, and it's recording my voice as we're speaking right now, uh, which is something I didn't expect to be happening. But that's a nice feature is you can actually record your own sentence. You don't have to say, okay, Google, you can say something uh, entirely different. If you're a real nerd and you like Iron Man, then you can say Jarvis. Or if you're a Star Trek fan, you can say computer. Um, you can add whatever you want to it, which I think is a nice way to uh, to look at that. One way that I think that speech recognition is really triumphing now, and, and this is a, a recent story, this is a recent thing that I've I'm just sort of dying to get overseas so I can try it, is with Google Translate. They are coming much closer to this idea of the whole universal translator because they have updated the app now to where you can actually have a conversation with someone in another language and just hand it back and forth where you don't have to switch out of the languages. So you can set it in advance to say, I'm getting ready to speak to a German person. You can speak in English. The English will be translated to German. The German person can speak in German. It will be translated to English, and you can go back and forth and have an actual conversation. I think that's just a, a huge leap forward in terms of the ability to transcribe and to translate that information. And they weren't satisfied, though, with just spoken word. They've also finally incorporated the Word Lens app that they bought a while back so that you can just point your phone at any text, and it will automatically translate that text into uh, into English or into whatever language you want to. I, I don't know if it has a limitation on the language. But uh, just being able to point it at a sign to know what that sign's saying, I think, is, is pretty cool. The Word Lens app, when I used to use it on my iPad, was a great app. Dennis, what, um, where do we think we're headed here with speech recognition? Is it ready for, I mean, is it more ready for prime time? Do we like it? What do we think, think about its future? You know, I think that when you go to this notion of what I would call right-sizing and thinking, then also, you know, the jobs to be done notion, what are, what are you hiring speech recognition to do and being reasonable about that? I'm really intrigued by the potential. I know there's a lot of buzz around 
something called the Amazon Echo, which to me seems like a voice command device as best as I can understand it that will come out later this year. And then I think there is a thing about the social context, but remember, we, we all thought that nobody would talk on their phones in public, that that was too weird. And we also thought that people wouldn't wear earphones and headphones all over the place, and they do. I sort of think the car is maybe what helps people with this, because although you say it's weird to talk you know, to uh, to a computer or to say, okay, Google in your car. The fact is, as we see in zillions of movies and TV commercials, people are, and we see, I see on, on the road uh, more often than I can believe, people sing along at the top of their lungs in, 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 in cars. So, you know, I, I, I think the cars, are, it's where you'll get it, and there'll be some other things. I think yeah, translation was another example I had where I think that, it, again, very specific job um, and where, where I think this can work. I, I just think where you say, I'm going to dictate my next novel, I think that's that's a harder thing. And then we also know that there are some huge issues uh as we learned even from the early days, if you're in noisy rooms, there's a lot of other things, you know, uh, things aren't going to obviously work as well because there's a lot that has to be overcome. But for certain things, especially where you can teach it or the technology starts to learn, I, I think there's a ton of potential. And, and I guess I'm finding myself sort of surprisingly thinking that that this uh, could be actually a, a really hot area over the next, say, two to two to three years. And there are some, as I said, some social and cultural things to actually, you know, talking in public to a device. But um, that may not be the way people really use it. And I also looked at some of the apps, you know, like time when we do, you know, order up a, an Uber, I, I think it might be easier if you could just use speech to order up that Uber car. Well, I think we're getting there. I, I My thought is a little bit more reserved than yours, that, that I think that speech recognition is a lot better than it used to be. I still think that there is room for improvement. I don't know that I'm that I'm quite there with you that it's the uh, something that's going to be hot over the next two to three years, but I'm willing to uh, to see it and hope that that's the case because I think that it's it's really pretty interesting. But I really do agree that speech recognition to me is only useful if there's if you have a job to be done. If there's something you use it for, I I tend to use it for speech recognition for basic commands for text messages for dialing a phone in the car. Uh, my phone will allow me to to start another app. Why would I want to start an app up with my voice when with two seconds I can open it up with my finger? It's sort of a trade-off, and it's, again, going to be a very personal decision, um, which I suppose makes it uh, an interesting technology because it's something different to everyone. I think that to the extent we continue these types of episodes, and I think we will, I, I mean, I think the advice is always going to be to people like, hey, maybe just go back and try some things and try some simple things, even like I said, dictating even one paragraph in an email or, or just trying a couple things along those lines. So that would be my wrap up is, hey, this is something to go back to and try. Or even just press that microphone button on your iPhone and 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 do a text message by uh, by voices is pretty easy and it's a cool thing to do. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. 
Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mall Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Google Glass was launched with much fanfare a few years ago, met with mixed success at best, and saw Google pull the plug on it recently. At almost the same time they that Google pulled the plug, Microsoft was announcing its new HoloLens, or HoloLens, however we decide to pronounce it, a virtual reality advanced holographic computing platform, which is how it's described and, and what it really is, is uh, to go back to the old days of virtual reality, uh, basically this wraparound device that covers your eyes and lets you see things in in 3D. It's grabbed a lot of early attention, Tom. So what are your thoughts about the the end, if it is, of Google Glass and the, the appearance of this new uh, HoloLens? Well, you added an important disclaimer right there at the end that said, if it is the end of Google Glass, because I don't know that we can really be sure of it. And and maybe for our audience sake, let's make sure everybody knows about Google Glass. Google Glass is something that came out, I think, two years ago. Google wanted to introduce a wearable that fits like a like a headset, but a, like a pair of glasses. But around the right eye, there's a, a small little uh, monitor that you can see a small screen and a display. You can um, see a map if you need to, to take a map. You can take pictures with it. You can take video with it. You can receive text messages or read emails. Um, it was designed to go where you go and to see and do what you're doing. And I think that the words coming out of Google recently didn't really say we're putting an end to it. They say they're pulling out what product they have right now, but I'm not totally convinced that they are done with Google Glass. Uh, you know, many people believe, and I tend to agree, that Google Glass was um, a wrong device at the wrong time kind of thing. People I don't think people were ready to accept something that goes on your head until they got used to something, uh, just the idea of wearable technology in general. And that's what's happened with smartphones, with, with excuse me, with smartwatches. Uh, you had people mocking Google Glass. They would call people who wore Google Glass glass holes. Uh, theaters and other venues were prohibiting the use of Google Glass because the, its ability to record people or movies. You had people getting traffic citations because they were using Google Glass while driving. All sorts of privacy concerns about whether people would be recording you with their Google Glass and you wouldn't even know about it. Now, I think that things are finally happening in the right order. I think smartphones were a better logical next step in terms of wearable the idea of having that Dick Tracy kind of watch was is something we've been thinking about for a long time. I think it's intriguing to more people than having something around your head. And I think it makes a lot more sense to be ac- accessing technology on your wrist, um, whether 
whether it's a watch or a fitness tracker, then something that's sitting on your head. As a result, I think smartphone sales are, are pretty hot right now. They're pretty well. And I think that's even before the Apple Watch comes out when they're, I think they're going to go kind of crazy. I'm going to I'm going to step back now and just say that that's all I have to say about Google Glass. I'm going to let you talk about the HoloLens uh, because I think you may have a different take on it than I do. Well, as I read about the HoloLens, what became interesting to me was the comparison with Google Glass, where Google Glass is sort of this idea that it's you're wearing it all the time, and it's feeding you information. Maybe it's doing these other things, and and but that sort of all the timeness about it was was maybe a drawback for such an early stage product. Whereas the HoloLens is really designed to be an immersion experience where you're wearing it for uh, you know a much shorter period of time to actually do something. It's like almost you're focused on something. And as I started to think about that and the sort of 3D augmented reality notion of it, it just became really interesting to me to say, well, I could see this type of approach working, say if it was uh, connected to what somebody was seeing in a microscope or they were looking at, uh, you know, in connection with the telescope or, you know, it's, some people have talked about uh, plumbing repairs or other things like that where you would be able to see what it is that you're going on with instructions and then still be, maybe have some way to actually do those things. And so that immersion aspect of it, the sort of shorter time frame and, and then the fact that you can kind of see in 3D this hologram notion uh, and and to me the prospect that that is put together with information directions uh, enhancements you know background that sort of thing so it really does become both a virtual reality in the sense of the early days of what you're seeing in a 3D world and the augmented reality of what you're seeing is also uh, overlaid with uh, potentially with with other information and that's what I think is is really kind of exciting about this. Again, with all first-generation stuff, you, you never know exactly how it works. But boy, there was a lot of excitement around that Microsoft announcement. Well, and, and I think that in some ways, it's unfair to compare these two devices because I think that they both are in t- intended to do completely different things. I'm not sure I completely agree with you when you say that Google Glass is designed to be worn all the time. Uh, but then when I compare it to something like a smartwatch, which is something that could be worn all the time, that seems more natural, I think, to people that they would wear a watch all of the time and have that information available to them or have access to whatever they have. I think that wearing something like Google Glass all the time would be a little awkward. It may not be something, but I view it differently. I view it as being more of a practical device. It can be part of your daily activity because you can navigate with Google Maps. You can see text message or mails. You can take pictures or video. You can search Google for information. It's a lot less obtrusive. You're never going to leave the house or the office with a HoloLens on top. There is a specific place and it's going to be in one location. I will agree. I think that this is a giant step forward from what we've seen from other types of virtual reality tools. The Oculus Rift, uh, when I see other types of virtual reality immersion type technologies, they mostly use it to just visit worlds where they can see things or or to play games and it's purely for entertainment purposes and what I'm really intrigued with here is the ability to to actually 
to use it as a practical device to uh, talk to people. Although, frankly, I think I was watching the video for it and, and they were showing a person watching a Skype call and the person giving a, a demonstration. And my first thought to that was, well, is that just a one-way Skype video call? Because if, if you're wearing this mask while it's happening, is the other person watching you wearing this big set of goggles? Or I don't, I don't really understand how that particular uh, thing would happen if you're going to use Skype. I think that uh, for me, watching a Skype video call within them would be pretty cool, but I'm just not sure how that would work. Um, I think that it's very cool. I see acceptance for this traveling along the same lines as other virtual reality tools with slightly more acceptance because it does have, I think, the potential for more practical use and applicability for either business or for getting things done, frankly. Now it's time for the parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I'm going to recommend two apps for uh, for Mac, actually, that uh, that if you're a Mac user, uh, I think they're both great apps. I've Well, one of them I've used forever, but it just has a Mac app, and the other one I just started using. Um, the first one is called Call Recorder for Skype. I wanted to find a very simple-to-use app that took good recordings of Skype conversations, and Call Recorder is about as simple to use as it can get. Um, it's... A, simple download. It's very unobtrusive. The minute that you start start an audio call, you just press the record button. It automatically downloads it into a file on your computer and uh, it, it gives it to you in a bunch of different formats if you want it. Uh, very simple, easy to use. Um, it worked flawlessly the first time I tried to use it. The second app is uh, LastPass, which I've been using the browser extension forever and I've been using it on my phone forever. I know that uh, for a long time, one password has had the monopoly on the Mac uh, desktop and, and on Mac devices. And I do like 1Password a lot, but I prefer LastPass. And LastPass in a, in a Mac app does everything that the other apps do. Um, it allows you to uh, open up sites automatically in a browser just by clicking on things in LastPass. Uh, it allows you to change passwords and manage your passwords and your secure forms and, and your logins and other things easily. It's a free download unless you're a premium subscriber, in which case uh, it's $12 a year to get the mobile apps for that. But uh, LastPass is a, is a great app to use on the, both Mac and PC. Well, I'm, I've am i been always interested in usability, and that's been enhanced by the fact that uh, I work with some people, uh, or at least I sit by people who are in the usability area. And it's amazing how they think through carefully how people use things and how you can make it easier and more natural for people to do things. So I had the occasion to actually uh, hear one of the great usability experts, a guy named Luke Robluski, that's W-R-O-B-L-E-W-S-K-I, um, speak and, and talk about this idea that's really simple, but I just think changes the experience that you have, um, especially on mobile devices in such a positive way. And so he talked about this and he's written about it now on his blog and we'll have the the URL in the show notes, but it's uh, the the blog post is called "Showing Passwords on Login Screens." Okay, so the notion, you know, we've always typed in passwords, and there's been all the asterisk, and so you can't tell what you've typed in. So if it fails, you don't know whether 
you use the wrong password or you type something in, you don't know exactly what happened because all you see are the asterisks. And so Luke says in most cases, especially when we're working from home, we know that nobody's going to be looking at what we're typing in on our screen or we know how to protect the screen in case that uh, somebody is around us. And so his notion is it's better to either have the choice or to default where you actually show what you're typing in and then give you the option to turn the asterisk on if you want to make sure that nobody sees it. And I think as, uh, and a lot of times as you use longer and longer passwords, that typing things on, in, especially on your, your phone, is, is difficult. And if you type it in wrong, it's, it's a real pain. And it's really amazing when you see this, and they're popping up more and more where you can elect to, to show the password, you just type it. On the mobile device, it just makes your life so much easier. So it's an example of one of these simple little changes that the usability people come up with that actually makes a big difference. I'll tell you the one area that it doesn't work, and I agree with you, I like the option to be able to see it. Um, but uh, Microsoft, I think, has adopted the wrong way of doing this because on my Surface tablet and in other Windows interfaces, it has a, a the, the way that it usually allows you to see it is if it puts a little closed eye next to the password and you press the closed eye to open it and that allows you to see it. Um, with Windows devices, uh, you, you have to press down on the eye and hold it. And when you lift your finger up, it makes the password go back to asterisk again, which I think is so completely useless. It doesn't help at all in being able to fix the password or do anything with it. So Microsoft, take Luke's advice and do something about your showing passwords on login screens. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question you want answered or a topic for an upcoming podcast, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. And I'm hoping to see some of you at uh, Legal Tech New York uh, this year, which you may be attending shortly after this podcast comes out. Look me up. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>